In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammie and Sandy. Dr. Jordan Grummet joins us this week on the Money Tales podcast. Jordan's father was a doctor who sadly collapsed and died of a brain aneurysm while working at the hospital. Jordan was young at the time and was determined to grow up and be just like his dad. Jordan figured that if he became a doctor, he could step into his dad's shoes and do the things that his dad never got the chance to do. So Jordan did become a doctor. And after years of burnout, realized that the thing he thought was his main purpose and identity in life didn't fit him very well. This is when a new adventure and focus for Jordan began. After years of blogging about financial independence and wellness, Jordan launched the Earn and Invest podcast in 2018, which has won numerous awards. Sandy and I were fortunate to be guests on the Earn and Invest podcast earlier this year, so be sure to check out that conversation too. In addition, Jordan is the author of the book titled Taking Stock, a hospice doctor's advice on financial independence, building wealth, and living a regret-free life. Here are three key money topics Jordan hits on in this conversation. First, how as a hospice doctor, he realized that people who are dying have a lot to teach us about money. Second, how when he became disconnected with his job of being a physician, Money became very important for Jordan because all he wanted to do was buy his freedom. And third, how the legacy we leave is much more than our financial resources. It's how we touched people in this world, who we were, and what was important to us. We hope you share this podcast with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now onto our conversation with Dr. Jordan Grummet. Welcome to the Money Tales podcast. I'm Cammie Doder. I'm Sandy Brager. And Cammie, I want to celebrate at the beginning of this episode, eight new partners of Asperian. Every year we give some of our employees opportunity to make a big money decision, purchasing into ownership of the firm. And this year's class is eight awesome professionals. And I just wanted to mention their names and their roles and really highlight them. It's such a great way to... to introduce this idea of money conversations when you're buying into your company. Absolutely. First off is Lynn Bourne, our chief practice officer. Camilla Kramer, she's a senior research analyst on our investment team. Matt Sharp, he's a wealth manager in our San Francisco office. Don Baca, who's a director in our strategic planning group. 
Jenny Sai, controller in our finance team in Los Angeles, Nick Rosette, who's a manager in our wealth management team in San Francisco, Laura Boucher, she's a manager in our fund administration group in Milwaukee, and last but not least, Teresa Greenup, who is another manager in our wealth management team in San Francisco. A very diverse group of members who've really contributed a lot to our organization, and we're so excited to have them as part of the ownership team at Asperian. And we are an employee-owned firm, which is very important to us because it allows us to align our own personal financial and career interests with our clients. And Sandy, it is such a diverse group. And I really appreciate the money conversations they must have had in their homes about this exciting opportunity. And one day we might have to invite them on Money Tales and we can ask some questions about those conversations. Great idea, Cammy. <laughs> well, next up, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Dr. Jordan Grummet, also known as Doc G. Welcome to the Money Tales podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Doc G, so would you introduce yourself? And in doing so, would you share a couple life pivotal moments that really impacted who you are today? Sure. I think it all started at the age of seven. My father was a successful doctor and went around at the hospital one day and collapsed and died. He had a brain aneurysm. And I grew up wanting to be just like him. I couldn't understand why this had happened. And I figured the way that would psychically make it right in the world is if I became a doctor like him, I could step into his shoes and do the things that he never got the chance to do. So I became a doctor and very quickly over the years burned out and realized that the thing I thought was my main purpose and identity in life didn't fit me very well. And so I went down the rabbit hole of financial independence and learned about money. I was thinking if I can find a way to extract myself from work, everything will be great and life will be good. I eventually read a book called The White Coat Investor, which taught me about financial independence, realized I had enough money, I could leave this job I was burned out from. And as opposed to being excited and amazed, I got depressed because I had no idea who I was or what my life should be about. I clung to being a doctor so tightly, I didn't know who I was. And from there, spent the next few years exploring. I started writing a financial blog called diversify.com, started a financial podcast called Earn and Invest, and eventually wrote a book called Taking Stock, a Hospice Doctor's Advice on Financial Independence, Building Wealth, and Living a Regret-Free Life. And that book was about my experiences with dying or hospice patients. The only part of medicine I held on to was taking care of people at the end of life. And my conversations with them started informing the financial conversations I was having on my podcast when I realized that the dying had a lot to teach us about some of these money issues that we have that we don't realize because we're spending so much time building wealth that we don't realize that actually it's a tool to help us live a better life. And so that's kind of how I ended up in front of you today. Mm -hmm. We're glad you're here. I have to share, and I'm so sorry about your dad. My dad had a brain aneurysm and we were very fortunate. Not many lived through it. He did, but wow. And we were traveling abroad. It was it was absolutely crazy. And I'm so sorry your dad passed and what an impact on you. Let's go back at those ages. When did money start having meaning to you and what was the catalyst for it? When my father died, I don't remember this. I was seven, but my mom remembers me coming to her and saying, well, what happens now? What if something happens to you? Natural, natural question what will happen to us kids? And that actually made her 
think about her finances as well as who would take care of us, et cetera. So I think it was on my mind, but once that was taken care of, and I grew up in a very middle upper class family. So money was always there. And my mom happened to be doing her master's in business at the time my father died. So she started as a CPA a few months later. So we always had enough to get along. So I didn't really ever feel a lack of money. Now, I will tell you, my parents did model great financial behavior. So my mom remarried and my mom and my stepdad owned their own businesses. They invested in the stock market. They owned real estate. All of these things taught me great financial behavior, but almost subconsciously, I didn't think about, oh, this is how you do the right thing with your money. I just tended to try to do what my parents had done. So by the time I became an adult, and I was practicing as a physician, it wasn't a jump to say I should save 50% of my income because that's kind of what my parents did. It wasn't a jump to say I should take what's left over and put it in the stock market because that's what my parents did. It wasn't a jump to say, oh, I should probably buy some real estate and act as a landlord. And so I don't remember ever really thinking much about it. I just remember doing it until I became disconnected with my job of being a physician. I became burned out. And then the money question really became important because I wanted to buy my freedom, or at least that's how it would have framed it at that time. So Jordan, tell us about that. And as a Tia, what was your lifestyle like when you were burning out at work and how dependent were you on the income you were generating? So I was in a fairly good position that I wasn't dependent on the income because we had always saved and invested and and been very careful. But as I got more and more burned out, I didn't really know any way that I could continue doing this job in a non-stressful way. So I only knew how to go full speed. So I owned my own practice and I saw patients in the hospital and the nursing home, and I was working 60, 70 hours a week. And so Looking back now, as I've done some of the harder work, I can go back and say, oh, I probably didn't have to leave medicine. I could have really fashioned a much better career for myself. So now I practice just hospice and palliative care medicine, something I love. Maybe if I had found that at the beginning of my career, I probably would have never made nearly as much money, but I would have had greater career longevity because I probably wouldn't have burned out as much. But at the time when I was in the midst of this, I didn't see those options. I saw it as a very bleak, you either have enough money to quote unquote, save yourself or not. And I was willing to do whatever it took to get to that money level so that I could leave permanently. How did you determine what that money level was? Part of my big disconnect and problem was I didn't have the vocabulary at all. As I said, my parents modeled great financial behavior for me, but we had never really talked about things like compound interest and specifically how much you need to retire. That came completely by accident. I was writing a medical blog at the time talking about medicine and life and what it felt like to be a doctor. And this guy, Jim Dolly, also known as the White Coat Investor, had written a financial book and he sent it to me because he wanted me to review it on my blog. And so he sent me this book. I read it literally, I think, in one sitting, and it gave me finally the vocabulary, the calculations, the understanding of what I would need to eventually retire. So this was the first time I heard of anything like safe withdrawal rates and the 4% rule of thumb and all those kind of things, which are not perfect. We all know this, but it was the first framework I actually had to start calculating, well, what does enough money look like and how can I then utilize or leverage that to start doing what I wanted to do with my life? What do you tell people, since you learned this important skill, what do you want to say or do say to 
younger people who are becoming doctors to learn from your experiences? I've really started to think about what the role money plays in our lives. And I think a lot of us make the mistake of getting very concentrated on the money without thinking about what we want to use that money as a tool to do. So what I really tell people, especially young people, physicians or otherwise, I say is, for a second, let's put the money issues aside and let's think about what you want out of your life. What does purpose look like to you? How do you identify as a person? What are the groups of the connections that you want in this world? And if you can get a better idea of what purpose looks like in your life, you then can build a financial framework around it so that instead of waiting till some later time that you're retired or that you hit some financial number, you can start living that life you want now and start incorporating your finances into that. So I think the biggest really piece of advice I give young people is remember the money is only a part of it. What you really want to figure out is what kind of life do I want to live? And then you can come back to the money piece because the money piece is actually very learnable and teachable. But figuring out who you are and what you want out of life and how you really want to spend the next 30 or 40 years, that's a much more difficult question. It takes more time. Jordan, I'm so glad you're bringing this up. It's really important, that message. And when we get started working with new clients, that's the place we always start with what is the purpose of the wealth? What is most important to you? What are you trying to achieve? And we don't ask those questions right off the bat just like that, but we dive into it and help clients really understand what is the role of this money in their life? And I'm curious, you had said earlier in the conversation that you learned a lot about money and life from your patients who are dying. And I'd love for you to say more about what you were learning and wondering if there's a link there between this purpose conversation that we're having right now. There most definitely is. See, the thing is when people find out they're dying, it's a great clarifier. For once in your life, you don't have the luxury of putting off difficult things. So what I found with my dying patients is for sometimes for some of them, it was the first time in their life, they're able to let go of societal expectations, let go of their own personal and family expectations. What I really realize is a lot of people, not all, but a lot of people put that stuff off. They put it off because, because they're afraid of failing. They put it off because they don't have time or they don't have money or they're too busy doing those other things in life they think are important. And so they never get to it. And then all of a sudden they're hit with this terminal diagnosis and they're like, oh my God, I have three months or six months to come to terms with all these things that were important to me that I never addressed. And on some level, I think we don't address these things because it scares the heck out of us. It reminds us that life is finite. And if we don't do some of these things now, we might never do that. And that scares us because this is really hard work. This is like, who am I and what do I want out of life? We often put off that hard work because it's scary. It reminds us that there is a timer on how much we have left. And so instead we replace it with other things that are lower hanging fruit. Things like getting to some certain economic or financial number, things like getting that next promotion. All of those things can be important in our life, but they can't take the place of doing some of that harder, deeper work. And the dying really showed me in a lot of ways that they have regrets that they didn't put the time into doing those deeper, into doing that deeper work, that they didn't put the time into doing those things that were important to them for whatever reason. The human condition is that we are going to live forever. Tell us what are some exercises that you might recommend 
listeners do to live like they're going to die tomorrow? So we don't know when we're going to die, right? Mm -mm. We could die tomorrow. We could die in 20 or 30 years. So the question really becomes, how do we start working on those things that are important to us today so that God forbid in the worst case scenario, we've actually started addressing these things. We do this with our hospice patients all the time. We do something called a life review. So after a hospice patient, when we take care of their symptoms and get them in a safe environment and their family and friends are close and all that kind of stuff, often a nurse or a social worker or a chaplain or even occasionally a doctor will sit down and do something called a life review. It is a structured series of questions that ask them about their lives, those important moments. What did they accomplish? What didn't they accomplish? What were the relationships that were key? What do they hope they can still accomplish in whatever time they have left? So we do this life review process, and I've seen it many times as well as been involved with it. And I started thinking, well, why don't we do this when we're much younger? Like, why do we leave it to the last minute? Because if you think about it, when you're dying and you have three months or six months, what you're really hoping is that if you can uncover some of these deeply important things you didn't get to, you have that last minute plot twist that fixes everything. So the question is, how do we help young people not need the last minute plot twist? Well, the way we do that is we get them to get much more in touch with their sense of purpose and what was important to them much earlier. So things like doing a life review, and there are tons of them online, you can find them. Something I ask a lot of people is, if you found yourself on your deathbed today, what would you regret never having the energy, courage, or time to accomplish? What are those things that you would regret if you find out all of a sudden your life expectancy was exceedingly short? And so that's a really, really good thought exercise. And this is not something you're going to answer immediately, right? This is something that takes some time and deserves multiple occasions where you sit down and meditate on this. And there's some other leading questions that just help. You know, often I ask people about their childhood. Almost everyone I know had some crazy audacious dream in childhood that they let go of, something that was deeply important to them. And most of the time they let go of it because someone told them they couldn't do it or life got serious or they're like, I can't make money that way. And it's funny how we come back to these things. And I see retirees when prompted actually find some real joy and solace in going back to those things that they dreamed about as a kid, but never had the courage to pursue. I often ask people another question. When was the last time you woke up in the middle of the night with a crazy idea and you couldn't go back to sleep because you were so excited? That happens to people all the time. And what inevitably happens the next day? Life sets in. You're tired, you're busy, you have to go to work, and we let that kind of thing float away. So I think we have these deeper whisperings of what purpose looks like in our life, and often we ignore them. And so part of that life review process or part of just starting to figure out who you are and what's important to you is to go back and try to listen to those whispers and see what really holds joy for you in your heart. Because most of us have that stuff, and a lot of times it's very individual to who we are. For one person like me, Looking back, I loved collecting baseball cards. I mean, some of my most joyous periods of childhood were collecting things, baseball cards, coins, stamps. And yet as an adult, I've completely abandoned this type of thing. On the other hand, if I'm on Facebook and I'm folding through and someone is selling baseball cards on Facebook Marketplace, my eyes immediately light up. These are those little whisperings. And so the question is, why don't we go back and pursue these things that clearly have meaning to us? Wow, Jordan, there's a lot that you just said there and a lot to unpack. I think that there's benefit in people writing down 
the responses to these questions that they're asking themselves and sharing them with their loved ones. I think that would be a really important life conversation. And I think important money conversation, because oftentimes the things that we really want to do or the things we're keeping ourselves from doing involve a dollar cost. And I think having that purpose and aligning it with your money is such an important exercise for people. In my experience, working with so many clients, that's how they achieve financial satisfaction and life satisfaction. You need that alignment. Yeah. And I would add to that, I love this having this conversation with family because we forget, most people forget what they think they're leaving as a financial legacy. But actually, when you have those deeper conversations of who you are and what you believe in, those are the things that actually carry on for generations. And we forget. We forget that we have much more a legacy than just our bank accounts and our numbers. A lot of our legacy, how we touched people in this world is who we are and what was important to us. And so when you sit down with your family and have these both financial and life conversations, what you're really doing is you're helping build your legacy. And that's ultimately what we leave. That again, makes me think of clients that I've worked with who come to us after they've inherited money and they're in a state of confusion. They have these great financial resources, but there was no meaning attached. They really struggle. How am I supposed to handle this money? Yeah. And I mean, again, you know, money is a tool. So when you get a bunch of money plunked down in your lap, the real question is, what are you going to use that tool to do? So what if you not only found out from your family how much money you were going to get, but you could talk to them about what they would like that money to do for you? I would like this money to go pay for my grandchildren's college education, because education is really important to me. I would like you to use this money to redo the Wisconsin hut on the lake so that you and family for generations can go and visit it. And you can put a little bit of money away and that'll cover travel costs and everyone can go. And we don't have to worry about their financial situation. Like when you start having those deeper conversations about what the money's actually supposed to do, I think you find that your children, your grandchildren, whoever's left with that financial inheritance knows much more what to do with it. And then when they use that money, that's your legacy. They're reliving your legacy and remembering you and using it in a way that you were hoping they would. And that's just fantastic. Hey, Jordan, in your introduction, you talked about a really emotional time where we could all feel it. You burned out as a doctor and then you figured out your financial resources. You're you're doing well enough. You can make a change. So you quit something that's totally burning you out, but it led to depression. And we've heard this before that there's something about we didn't value all components of something we had. Will you share more about the feelings and, and going through this period of your life? So it was very, very sudden when I realized that I had enough money to leave medicine. I was very, very burned out. So I was very ready to leave medicine. But the problem with that is I had to step away from the only real identity and purpose I had ever connected with or I had ever known. So to make that decision, I had to step away from those things and step away from my memories of my father, because that was also a wisp of a connection that I had to who he was and who he did. And so it was a very personally difficult moment for me. Again, as opposed to being jubilant and excited, I found myself panicked and afraid 
because I didn't know who I was and I didn't know what I wanted. And it took me quite a bit of time to actually figure those things out. I had to go through the process and I, I actually started writing a financial blog, but really what that was for me was an online diary of all those things I was going through, all those mixed emotions of worrying so much about money than realizing that money could work for me and realizing that I had it under control and then trying to figure out, well, what does life look like after that? And so I think it was just a very, very difficult time for me to figure out what purpose looked like, to walk away from the burnout and anxiety of medicine, but then to realize that that was the only connection I had to much purpose up until that point, besides the obvious stuff like a spouse and kids and all that stuff was there. It's not that I was completely lost, but at least when it came to what I thought my personal mission was, it was a really big pivot. And that was anxiety provoking. Tell us about the conversations you were having with your family at that time, because this was a big change, I'm sure, for them. So it really was. I always talk about how my identity had gotten wrapped up in being a doctor, but it wasn't just me. That was the identity everyone else had for me, too. And so in a sense, when I talked about walking away from medicine, especially, let's say, for my mom, this idea was also walking away from the identity that she had plotted out for me over the years, too. Not not in a bad way. It was just the way she saw me. So there was some definite adjustment. Now, it wasn't nearly as stressful for them as it was for me. And of course, I had to have these same conversations with my wife who who knew me well enough to say, okay, this isn't serving you. So she actually saw different different things in me and said, okay, I think you've overly identified with being a doctor and there's a lot more you're interested in. She was one of the first people to say this. But then she also had to come to terms with the financial changes, right? Here I am making lots of money being a doctor, being a high income earner. And one of the things I was walking away from was not just the identity of being a doctor, but the identity of being a, a high income earner. And that in itself too carries its own fears and struggles. And so I think it was an adjustment for almost everyone. You know who it was an adjustment for? My kids. The reason why is my kids, I'd always prided myself as being a very involved father, but my kids grew up with me running out of violin concerts and family affairs to answer the phone constantly. I had my, the phone was on my ear constantly because I was always answering pages and phone calls. So it was an adjustment for them because all of a sudden I was just present and things were easier and they saw a dad who was happier and more adjusted. So besides the kids, I think it was a little bit more of an adjustment for everyone else. But I think by far, it was still harder on me than anyone because for them, they came to terms with it fairly quickly. But it was for me where I really struggled on who am I now and what does this mean? Jordan, were you talking about money openly as a family at that time? Thinking about when your father died, one of the questions you asked your mom was like, are we going to be okay? And so I can imagine your kids having some of the same questions. Wait, what? dad's not going to be a doctor anymore? Like, We've always been fairly intentional about talking about money with our kids. That doesn't mean we go into the exact numbers, but they've actually grown up watching us go through this whole process. So I've talked to them quite a bit about financial independence. In fact, my son actually edits my podcast now. So he's he's 18 now, but he started doing this quite a number of years ago. So he's been listening to these financial conversations and we often talk to them about big purchases. And we actually started giving them a yearly allowance so that they could have to learn how to budget their money themselves from the beginning of the year. So we've had a lot of these financial conversations. 
and I think made it fairly clear that God forbid, if something was was to happen to one or both of us as parents, that they would have the financial means that were necessary and be okay. So I think my parents showed great modeling when it came to money behavior, but not much didactic teaching with my kids. I've tried to do a little bit of both, a little bit of didactic teaching here and there, and then definitely modeling. And then the last piece with kids is experience. And that's the whole idea behind the yearly allowance is that they can succeed and fail experientially. So modeling, didactic teaching, and experience, the three things we've kind of tried to use with them and intertwine to help them learn about money. That's great. It reminds me when my own kids were were a bit younger and we gave them money on a quarterly basis, not annual we called it practice money because I didn't, the idea of allowance, I just didn't like that word. And they came back to us and they said, mom, dad, why are we calling it practice money? <laughs> We're not practicing. This is experience. And so they said, let's call it experience money. So thank you for making me remember that. I love the branding. It makes me think with my kids, the idea you've got your son involved in the podcast, mine are younger, they can't do that. But I like the idea of involving your kids where it's then natural to have these conversations where it's it's tangible, right? It's not a concept. And I really think we learn best that way. Yeah. One of the, the funniest things that my kids, because we're open enough about money, they realize that we've got a decent amount of wealth, right? We worked really hard. We saved a lot of money. We invested aggressively. But then they have to understand the disconnect of we may have more wealth than many people that they know through school, et cetera. But often those kids spend a lot more aggressively than we allow our children to, or we model much less spending behavior than they see in other kids around them. And so that's been also an interesting dichotomy for them because they see that we're very intentional with how we use the money we have. I think that's something that that they've both been really thoughtful about. That's great. That modeling and conversation combination is so powerful. Jordan, you've shared with us your journey, your money journey. You've come such a long way from where you began. How would you describe your relationship with money today? I would like to hopefully say that I try to be as indifferent as possible. And I know that that's a very kind of privileged look at things, but I try to spend as little time thinking about money as possible And so we've built it into our lifestyle that we don't do things like budget, like we've created, we have automatic savings and automatic investments and automatic retirement. So as opposed to budgeting, we just know how much money is in the bank account and that's what we can use and everything else takes care of itself. I won't be Pollyanna about it. I mean, I think anyone who is careful with their finances is always going to have a certain amount of anxiety because that's what allows us partially to be successful. Like anxiety is just a natural response to money. And I think everyone at some point is worried that, oh my gosh, I could lose it or not have enough, et cetera. And to say that you're not going to have some of those feelings, I think is inauthentic. But I try to make it something where I don't have to pay nearly as much attention as I did in the past. Jordan, you have amazing conversations throughout your lives, it sounds like, day in and day out. Tell us, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? So I have money conversations almost every day because I record multiple podcasts a week. I'm going to be recording on Monday with a young couple who is in their early 20s and discovered the financial independence retire early movement. 
And we're going to talk a little bit about what lifestyle design looks like to very young people as they start getting control of their finances. But what is building this kind of intentional life with a good financial framework look like, especially when you're starting in your early 20s? Mm, Great conversation. We talked about fire with a recent guest. Mm -hmm. That's great. Jordan, where's the best place for our listeners to find you? So the easiest way to find me is go to jordangrummet.com. That's J-O-R-D-A-N-G-R-U-M-E-T.com. There you can, of course, find out everything about the book and where you can buy it. The book's called Taking Stock. The other thing is I've created over the years content in three different ways, and links are all there at jordangrummet.com. So I had a financial blog called Diversify. I had a medical blog called In My Humble Opinion. And finally, what I spend most of my time doing now, which is the Earn and Invest podcast, all the links are at jordangrummet.com. Jordan, it was great to have you on Money Tales. We enjoyed being on your Earn and Invest podcast. Thank you again for sharing so much with us and our listeners. Thank you. It was a blast having you on Earn and Invest and a really fun time coming here and being on your show. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time.